Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Good morning and uh, welcome. When I was uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a, a well, it was a, an expression. It was called Purim Torah. The two words, of course, are very familiar to us. The concept may, in fact, not be the word Purim. We certainly understand the word Torah. We understand, but the word Purim Torah is generally an idea that on Purim that uh, the rabbis and teachers of uh, the Jewish community, that they would stand up and they would often offer um, expositions or ideas or explanations, reflections in the Torah that were bordering a bit on the absurd, was certainly funny, and uh, so Purim Torah was often an offering uh, for that. I actually thought of saying something else, but then this morning when I was walking to shul, and it's a very short walk for me, so it wasn't a long thought, I said to myself, you know what? I haven't spoken about Purim in a long time, and I thought it might be a good time to do it because Purim is this Thursday night, and we should think about it. We probably know that the Jewish holiday calendar, as it was envisioned, envisioned excuse me, in this beautiful book, Called the Torah. That the Jewish calendar does not begin on Rosh Hashanah and it doesn't conclude on Rosh Hashanah, but in fact the Jewish calendar is actually something that begins with Pesach. The reasons as to why Passover receded in terms of the calendrical cycle and Rosh Hashanah became the day in which our standardized calendar was both the beginning and end of it on an annual basis is a discussion for an entirely different day. But allow us at least to pay attention to the fact that in the concept of biblical Judaism, the way that the Torah actually imagined that Judaism would exist and function, that the holiday cycle, the calendar, would begin with Passover. In fact, we're told that Pesach is Rosh Hashim, that it is the beginning of all the months, that all of the Jewish holidays are counted from Passover. How do we know this? Because in the Torah, and this is to be entirely honest with you, this is a little bit open to some scholarly debate, but I'm going to make the statement anyway. Generally, it is agreed that the months as they're understood in the biblical calendar have no names. So then how are they known by if they don't have names, if there's no, I don't know, Adar and Nisan, if there's no September, October? They're known by numbers. So Pesach, we are told, is the first month of the year, the month in which Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur falls out in, which today is known to us as the Hebrew month of Tishrei, are known as the seventh months of the year. All of the calendar emerges and is counted from Passover. And actually, when you think about it, it makes eminent sense. Because no different from you or me, our lives are counted from our birthdays. Pesach, Passover, stands as the great birth date of the Jewish people. And so if Pesach is the beginning of the Jewish calendar cycle as the Torah imagined it, and certainly the ancient rabbis knew that, because the calendar that we have today that we use is a latter rabbinic creation then what then is the last of the Jewish holidays? It, of course, is Purim. You know that when Purim falls out, you're about 30 days from sitting at your Seder. 
And uh, if you're living in a non-COVID moment in your life, that is both an exciting idea, it's also a little bit of fearful idea of all the preparations in cooking an organization that having 10, 20, even 30 people at your dinner table for a Seder night can occur. And interestingly enough, both Pesach and Purim, although separated by 30 days, they both share something in common. What they share in common is that they are alive and well in the imaginations of our children. That as Bible stories go, the story of Purim and the story of Passover, certainly Hanukkah as well, are stories that are very beautifully animated in the minds of our children. But what I want to do is take a story that broad strokes of which are understood by children. I want to talk to you as an adult. Because these holidays, while having broad conceptual ideas that children can understand and love, like most of Judaism, it's not a pediatric religion. Let us not infantilize it. It's a deeply mature and adult idea. So let's have an adult conversation about this holiday. The broad strokes of it, I think, certainly are known to us. It takes place during the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire takes over of the collapsed Babylonian Empire roughly about 2,600 years ago, 2,700 years ago. It then occupies, it becomes the world's largest empire, 127 countries or provinces throughout the world. The Jews after the destruction of the first temple by those Babylonians, the ten tribes are lost. They're in exile in Babylon, now Persia. So the majority of the Jewish population is living outside of the borders of the ancient land of Israel. There's a king who dies, a new king who comes up. Sounds a little bit like Passover, doesn't it? And um, his wife dies. How she dies, we're not going to go into. And he needs, kind of like Shrek in the movie, the king can't be alone. So he needs to find a new queen. A little bit on the parody side, the story tells us he holds a beauty contest throughout the whole country. He finds what he feels to be the most beautiful woman in the entire empire. And that woman, who we are told, her name is Esther. Esther, unbeknownst to the king, is in fact Jewish. She's an orphan, we are told. Her uncle, who's named Mordechai, tells her not to reveal her ethnic identity, to keep it secret. At the same time, this new king has one of his advisors, one of his most trusted advisors, a man named Haman Haman, tells him that there's a fifth column in his empire threatening his rule. The king asks who it is. Haman tells him, it's the Jews. The king and Haman taking a play out of the book of Stalin, who famously said, if you get rid of the man, you get rid of the problem. Haman said to him, let's get rid of the Jews, you'll get rid of your problem. The king said, I don't have a problem with it, do it. What then begins is a turn of both remarkable and insane proportions of permutations of royal court intrigue arriving at this penultimate moment. Esther understanding what's going to happen to her people. Haman, Haman realizing that his influence with the king is waning because of Esther's growing influence and the king's deep love for her have a confrontation in her chambers. They fight. They have an argument. And Haman, as he's trying to make his way closer 
to Esther to make his point, trips, we're told, and he falls right on top of her. And guess who walks into the room just as he falls on top of her? The king. Upon seeing the king enter, what does Esther scream? Rape. And thus the story ends. The Jews, Esther says, are my people. The king famously says, Ad, ad until half of the kingdom I would give you, Esther. And she says, save my people. And thus the miracle of Purim, we are told, unfolds. That's the broad story. Here are some weird ideas that come from the story. Number one, the little bit of the parody of it is, is that the name Esther and Mordechai, they're not really Jewish names. They're Persian Babylonian names. Ishtar and Marduk, number one. Number two, the story itself, the salvation comes through an act of intermarriage. Okay, I'm just putting it out there. Which certainly was a, was a source of bewilderment for the rabbis as they looked to interpret the story. On a deeper level, the book of Esther, which tells us the story, which is incorporated into the canon, to the collection of the Hebrew Bible, stands out as unique and unusual from all the other books of the Bible. Because, because the book of Esther does not mention the name of God even once. Which is a remarkable thing to consider, that there's actually a book in the Bible that does not mention God's name even once. Not once. So once again, I want to ask the question to you. The Jewish calendar begins with Passover. It ends with Purim. What's the story here? The story, it seems to me, is seen in this answer. Passover, as we know, is the story of remarkable things happening in the world when there is trouble and problems. The Israelites are enslaved, and then God sends both messenger and plagues in order to secure the freedom of the Jews out of Egypt. And as the Jews leave Egypt, once again, under miraculous circumstances, plagues and water parting and all those things, it is reminded, a symbol that Passover is, of God's firm hand in controlling the world that both nature and humanity will bend to the will of God, no matter how obstinate it may be. It will bend, if not break, to what God wants. And that when there is a call of trouble, because what does it say in the book of Exodus, that the, that the children of Israel, that they cried to God, and God heard and saved them. But Purim is an entirely different story. Passover is a story of God's interventions into nature and man, into res rescuing and saving things. Purim is the exact opposite. In the book of Esther, as I said to you, God's name is not even mentioned once. The entire story, there is no sense that God is even present in the story. It is all, if any salvation comes to the Jews, and it does, it is because of the ingenuity and faithfulness and determination of the human players that they are the authors of their salvation. And no one is sitting around waiting for God to come and save them. They know that they must save themselves. They know that. 
If the Jewish calendar begins with the story of Passover and it ends with Purim, we certainly are led to understand that the world that we live in is not the world of Passover. That world has come and gone. The world we live in is the world of Purim. Where if salvation is going to come our way, we are going to be the ones who will have to make it happen. It's interesting to note, of course, how beloved Purim is throughout countless generations of Jews for much, much of our history. It's also interesting to note that Purim is the classic story of Jews living in exile. We know that we have forever in the course of being in exile, being an oppressed minority, subject to the whims and the violence of others, that if we were to survive, it would not be by a miracle. It would be by our determination to find a way to survive. So the question for us this morning is, which is better? Is it Passover or it's Purim? Which is the source of our greater survival? Is it Passover or it is Purim? I'm not sure what the answer is, but I'll put this idea out to you. The architect of our exodus from Egypt, Moses, we have no idea what happens to his children. Certainly his grandchildren or great-grandchildren, we never hear of them again of influencing or affecting the Jewish story. But Purim, the ancient rabbis teach that Esther's grandson, who became emperor of the Persian Empire, Darius the Great, he was the one who gave money and permission for the Jews to go back to Israel to rebuild and make the second temple. More often than not, when we are the architects of the things that save us, we not only have the fruit of the moment, but of the many blessings that come from our efforts, that we acknowledge the strength that God gives us from us, and we use it as a blessing for our time and the others that follow. Shabbat shalom, everyone, and a happy Purim.